0: Coming up this week on the Thomas Jefferson Hour, we speak with President Jefferson, and he answers many questions sent in to us by our listeners. I really enjoyed his discussion about Mr. Madison and Mr. Monroe.
1: Yes, it's true that he loved Madison and respected Monroe, but he thought that Madison was a much greater man than Monroe, and yet they were all good friends, Republicans and neighbors. We also talk about the origins of West Point, and Jefferson's view of the war powers in American history.
0: One listener wanted to know about Monticello and the pathway up to the house. And was it the same? And Jefferson had an answer.
1: Does the Thomas Jefferson Memorial Foundation harmonize with Jefferson's own uh, practices at Monticello? And how is that possible, given the vast changes in technology?
0: And lastly, I talk about constitutional freedom. All that and more on this week's Thomas Jefferson Hour. Good day, citizens, and welcome to What Would Jefferson Do?, our weekly opportunity to discuss current American events with President Thomas Jefferson. And good day to you, Mr. Jefferson.
1: Good day to you, citizen.
0: Mr. Jefferson, there's a national battle brewing over federal and local vaccine requirements intended to help stop the surge of COVID-19 cases. In fact, an Ohio congressman recently said that we should just ban all vaccine mandates. Now, I know, sir, that you were vaccinated against smallpox, and you were a proponent of this, correct?
1: I was. Smallpox was the scourge of our time. There were other terrible problems, too, of course. But smallpox was the greatest killer, and it killed a vast percentage of the European population and the American Indian population of the West. Uh, I was inoculated, not vaccinated. Inoculation is when you get a, a, a small dose of the actual disease and then the hope is that your body can survive it. Vaccination came in about the time I became the third president of the United States. And that's where you get a harmless cousin of the disease that can't hurt or kill you, but nevertheless makes you immune. And I became an advocate of vaccination. In fact, I sent the serum of the smallpox vaccine with Meriwether Lewis when he uh, began his epic journey across America in 183 and 4. Unfortunately, the smallpox vaccine that he carried became inert, and he was unable to uh, vaccinate the Native peoples that he met.
0: Federal and local vaccine mandates are slated to kick in Uh, Shortly, many already have in the United States. How do you feel about the federal government mandating vaccinations?
1: My essential response is that that government is best which governs least, that what you want is an enlightened citizenry that understands science, that understands uh, disease, that understands what's in their best interest and, uh, and does the right and rational thing. On all occasions, in other words, I want the most limited possible government, particularly at the national level, and I want a very enlightened citizenry that doesn't need to be told what to do, uh, but understands these things uh, among themselves. Uh, I'm very reluctant to, to believe that a national policy requiring vaccination is in the spirit of American liberty.
0: Well, as you know, sir, it has been a voluntary effort up to this point, but uh, the current president is using the power of federal government to mandate that certain federal employees do get vaccinated. Do you think the government has the right to do this when it comes to federal employees?
1: I do not, sir. Uh, uh, Your world is a different one from mine. You are more comfortable with with government than than we were in my own time tyranny is when government does things that the people have not authorized it to do uh, and the people are then left to suffer and you may have a constitutional understanding in your time that enables the national government to to impose such mandates but if you do the people have given up a very large uh, portion of their of their natural rights and liberties
0: that may be, sir. And I agree with you that we should trust the enlightenment of the people to lead them to the right decision. But at this time, sir, one in 500 Americans have have died from from this disease. And it, it gets to a point where we can't wait around for the good judgment of people anymore. So finally, what would you say to those that are uh, hesitant to become vaccinated?
1: I would urge every individual to look into this you have extraordinary uh, resources now that people can consult free at any time of the day or night uh, in ways that would have been seen as magical in my own time if you're going to have mandates then they should be at the local level it seems to me that government is best which is closest uh, to your farm or to your household and in a in a small community that we can have something approaching real democracy where if the community let's say of Charlottesville decided that we agree that we will mandate vaccines, then that's more appropriate than the faraway national government imposing something on communities of a variety of geographies, a variety of of points of view, a varieties of theories of human liberty.
0: Thank you very much, Mr. Jefferson.
1: You're welcome, sir.
0: day, citizens, and welcome to the Thomas Jefferson Hour, your weekly conversation with President Thomas Jefferson. Mr. Jefferson, when he's here, is portrayed by the award-winning humanities scholar and author and creator of the Thomas Jefferson Hour, Mr. Clay Jenkinson. I'm your host, David Swenson, and I'm so pleased to have a conversation with you this week,
1: Mr. President. It's good to see you, my dear citizen.
0: We have many questions from your listeners, sir, and I I thought I might start with this one. It's about Monticello, and it comes from Thurman Bridges. As you know, sir, the public can now visit Monticello. I've been there myself. And when you arrive, you walk up a very winding, steep pathway to get to the house. And Mr. Bridges wants to know, is that pathway, that road that people take today the same that existed in your time?
1: yes, within limits. In other words, modern engineers have approached this in ways that were not uh, available to me in my own time. But the extraordinary thing about the people at the Thomas Jefferson Memorial Foundation, the the organization that operates my home at Monticello today and opens it to, to the visitation of people from all over the world, what makes them so remarkable is how Closely, they try to maintain the infrastructure at Monticello to preserve my gardens, my pathways, uh, the, my orchard, my vineyard, uh, the way in which the house was uh, maintained. Uh, this is a, an act of, of extraordinary respect, possibly respect that I don't deserve. And it's very expensive, too, because if you brought modern engineers in, Uh, To a nearby mountain of about the same height, and said, First level it, then build a garden terrace of a thousand feet, then build a brick Palladian house with underground uh, walkways and storage facilities. They would go about it in a way that's profoundly different from uh, the approach that we took in the 18th and early 19th centuries. Uh, But when the people who manage my estate now, uh, attempt to make it more uh, stable um, and and more accessible to a range of visitors they do everything in their power to adhere to my own design uh, approaches now the the road that you take up um, to the portico of the house today is just one of many pathways that i had there was a whole configuration of different approaches uh, to the house in my time some steeper and therefore really only available for horses and others gentler, so that a carriage could make its way up.
0: Our next question comes from Matthew Moosey, who wrote you in 2004, sir. He was a cadet at your, as he says, your military academy at West Point, and he posed a question about your decision to establish the military academy, despite your reluctance for standing professional armies. He says your answer was, of course, very reflective of the wisdom and temperance shown from elders to youth, and says for that he is grateful. He writes, Would I might return to this question some many years later, and I wizened by several combat tours overseas? How should a Jeffersonian republic manage its substantial war powers in an increasingly unsure world? As always, your most obedient servant, Major Matthew Moosey, Ph.D., Army of the United States.
1: What an extraordinary letter, and and many thanks uh, to, uh, to Matthew. First of all, West Point, like most of the Founding Fathers, I was worried about the establishment of a permanent military. We had read our Roman history and the history of other previous republics and governments, and we knew that a standing army is a license for mischief. It seeks wars to fight, and it often turns against the very people who have created it. The number of instances of this in the late Roman Republic is deplorable, and we must guard against it in this, our own happy republic. But, if, but I knew, as a realist, I'm, I'm a visionary and a dreamer on the one hand, and I'm a pragmatist in everyday life. And I knew that we would have a military. We, In my time as president, we had a, an army of about 5,000. Most of them were stationed in the West. And so I knew we would have something that amounts to a permanent military establishment. My, my vision for a militia only till actual invasion is a beautiful vision, I think. Uh, but it is, in some respects, unrealistic. So if we're going to have a permanent military establishment, then we ought to train those officers to be as enlightened as possible, to know the history of war, to know the madness of war, to know how to limit casualties in war, to make sure that war is fought between uh, identifiable combatants, to adopt rules of civility for the exchange of prisoners. My goal was to professionalize the officer corps so that our armed forces were led by people of great understanding and wisdom and not simply by people who had a thirst for authority or a desire for war. So the question that Matthew asks is not about the establishment of West Point, but I wanted to make that clear to those who were uncertain about that. But it's about war powers in your time. As you know, I believe very strongly that the earth belongs to the living, not the dead. It's several hundred years after my time, and the very nature of war has changed. Certainly, the nature of weaponry and the pace of war has changed beyond recognition, I would say. So, I'm not certain that I have any particular wisdom about this, but I will say this. The Constitution, produced by those 55 great men in Philadelphia in 1787, is very emphatic that wars must not be fought without explicit congressional endorsement. That wars must begin in the House of Representatives, because the House of Representatives is the national legislative body that's closest to the actual will of the people. That wars cannot be begun by the president except during times of recess from Congress or when there's an invasion that must be responded to. But but all of these actions must find their way to the House of Representatives as quickly as possible. The president might need to call an emergency session, but if he does something to protect, say, the harbor at Boston. He's doing that as commander in chief. He has that constitutional authority, but it must lean on the will of the people. So this was something that the founding fathers felt very strongly about. Many of them were more conservative than I. And one of them, of course, was Alexander Hamilton and another was George Washington. And they understood the the menace of war powers being wielded by a runaway executive or for that matter, any executive. So this is essential in your time. You have fought a wide range of undeclared wars where Congress is not consulted or if consulted is not asked to vote. This cannot be good for a republic. It's absolutely essential that the people decide when to go to war and not be dragged into wars by unenlightened uh, executives of one sort or another. Uh,
0: you mentioned Mr. Hamilton in your comments. We got a question from a Mr. Irwin Weeks. And he writes, Dear Mr. Jefferson, a newspaper reported that Mr. Hamilton introduced a constitutional amendment to abolish the three-fifth clause to reduce Southern votes. President Washington made the first presidential veto of it.
1: Is this true? don't think that this is exactly true, but I will say this. Hamilton was an abolitionist. One of his uh, most extraordinary qualities was his belief that we could not be a republic that um, asserted that all men are created equal and have a portion of that population enslaved. He uh, had uh, several slaves in the course of his early life. He he distanced himself from from that institution. He was a founding member of the New York Abolitionist Society. He made no effort to restrain himself on this question. He was a, a believer. I was myself an abolitionist. Uh, to the extent that I was permitted to be one within the political confines of Virginia life. I praise Hamilton for this, certainly. And there was a belief by the Northerners particularly, and Hamilton was one of them, that the Three-Fifths Clause was a very embarrassing problem in our Constitution. For those who are unaware of it, the Three-Fifths Clause was a compromise that was developed in Philadelphia in which every five Black individuals, men or women or children, would be counted as three for the purposes of apportionment and representation. In other words, some Southerners wanted all slaves to be counted when we decided how to uh, apportion taxation or to build infrastructure in, uh, in certain states. Some Northerners wanted no slaves to be counted because they weren't citizens, they were property. And so why should they be counted um, for the purposes of our constitutional order? And between this Northern view that no slaves should be counted and the Southern view that all slaves should be counted, there eventually was uh, worked out the three-fifths clause that said that for every five uh, Black people uh, in, say, Georgia, three would be counted for the purposes of apportionment and representation. And that uh, is... uh, I suppose the only compromise that that, that could have uh, survived, if either the North or the South had been unrelenting, uh, uncompromising in their views of this institution, there would have been no United States Constitution. So I must tell you, in the, uh, for the purposes of historical candor, that it is quite possible that I would not have been elected to be the President of the United States in 1800 had it not been for the Three-Fifths Clause. That the Electoral College and and, and our congressional representation uh, favored the South uh, because of this clause. If you had removed it and said that only white uh, people are, are counted um, for the purposes of apportionment and representation, in other words, only white people are citizens in the full sense, and that that's the system on which we must base our um, electoral politics, I probably would not have won. The election of 1800. So some Northerners, and possibly Hamilton himself, called me, quote, the Negro president.
0: Mr. Jefferson, you're telling me that without the three-fifths clause, you don't believe that you would have been elected president?
1: I'm not certain of that, sir. Possibly I would have won irrespective of the three-fifths clause. Uh, but there are those who believe that that's what allowed me to carry the election, it's very difficult to speculate about what would happen if such and such a circumstance were not in place. You know, if there had been no three-fifths clause, uh, maybe I would have won in another way. But if you just look at the at the math, at the at the nature of the of apportionment in my time, uh, it does appear that the three-fifths clause was essential to that election.
0: Understood. Thank you, Mr. Jefferson. We need to take a short break from this conversation, but we will return in just a moment. You're listening to The Thomas Jefferson Hour. Welcome back to the Thomas Jefferson Hour, your weekly conversation with President Thomas Jefferson. And I thank you, Mr. Jefferson, as always, for answering these many questions from your listeners, sir.
1: I am pleased to know what's in the mind of the people who care about the American Republic.
0: Here's one that I'm interested to hear your response to, sir. It comes from J.C. He writes, the following letters seem to make clear That James Madison believed in an absolute separation of church and state as a benefit to both the church and the state. And then he mentions a letter that James Madison wrote to Edward Livingston on the 10th of July, 1822. And I'm going to read a short portion of that for your comments, sir. Notwithstanding the general progress made within the two last centuries in favor of this branch of liberty and the full establishment of it, in some parts of our country there remains, in others, a strong bias toward the old error that without some sort of alliance or coalition between government and religion, neither can be duly supported." Such indeed is the tendency to such a coalition, and such its corrupting influence on both the parties, that the danger cannot be too carefully guarded against. And in a government of opinion like ours, the only effectual guard must be found in the soundness and stability of the general opinion on the subject. Every new and successful example, therefore, of a perfect separation between ecclesiastical and civil matters is of importance, and I have no doubt that every new example will succeed, as every past one has done, in showing that religion and government will both exist in greater purity the less they are mixed together." And J.C. asks, is this correct and why this isn't used as a justification for an absolute separation of church and state? I suspect, sir, you have some comments to make on this.
1: Well, first of all, uh, what an extraordinary man James Madison was. I agree 100% uh, with the sentiments of that letter. And I really formed my friendship with Mr. Madison over this issue. When we first really began to know each other, it was over the issue of separation of church and state in Virginia. And both of us believe this, that there should be a wall of separation between church and state, that people should worship the God of their choice or none, that they should affiliate themselves with any religious establishment they like or none, that a person's religious views have nothing to do with his status as a citizen of the United States. That religion is a profoundly private matter between a person and his God, a person and his pastor, a person and his conscience, but it is of no interest or business of the state. So Madison and I agreed about that, and this is his strongest letter in his life in, in support of that separation. I address this many different ways at different times, including in Notes on the State of Virginia, my only book, which was privately printed in 1785. But most people remember the letter I wrote to the Danbury Baptists in early 1802, saying that my reading of the First Amendment was that it erected a wall of separation between church and state. And that phrase has come to be a a tight uh, characterization of my view, Madison's view, and I think the view of every enlightened person. Uh, This is what I find so interesting about the letter. In my time a large percentage of the american population believed that it was essential for there to be a religion uh, and that that religion needed to be protected and supported by the state and john adams i think was one of them he believed that humans are uh, sinners that they are greedy and, and lustful and rapacious and and self-interested and and they they have habits that can be called sin And that they cannot be restrained by government alone, that there needs to be an extra restraining mechanism in any viable society. And that extra restraining mechanism is religion. Religion uh, encourages people to be charitable. It encourages people to look beyond their own naked self-interest and so on. And and Adams and others, many others, believe that if you jettison religion altogether and try to pursue a, a merely secular constitutional society, that you will inevitably fail because that's not a sufficient restraining mechanism for all that is dark or illiberal in the human spirit. This was the orthodox view in my time, even in America. You know, most people believed that religion was essential. I take great pride in having written the Virginia Statute for Religious Liberty. Uh, I wrote it. Madison agreed with it. But it would never have become law, I think, had it not been for the, the assiduous work of James Madison, who had a much greater appetite for legislative give and take than I did. I suppose the question for your time is, who was right? If Adams were looking at the United States in 2021, would he say, this is what happens when you detach church and state? You you create a radical secular society that that in which there is not a, a decency or cohesion. Or if I looked at the world of Twenty twenty one or Mr. Madison, maybe a better example, would he say, We were right, that you can separate church and state and leave a uh, religious life absolutely to the conscience of the individual, and you will you will be just fine as a nation.
0: To me is one of the great wisdoms of the Founding Fathers that that this became law that church and state would be separated. I mean, this was something quite unique for its time, was it not?
1: It was. When I went to France in 1784 as the minister at large and eventually uh, the successor to uh, Benjamin Franklin as the American ambassador, I was not well known there for the Declaration of Independence. In fact, most people in the United States did not know then in the 1780s that I was the author of the Declaration of Independence. But the Virginia Statute for Religious Liberty which passed in 1786 and which I circulated to my friends like Lafayette and others in France, immediately became famous. And people pointed to it and said, that's an enlightened society. Virginia in separating church and state and leaving everyone to their own conscience is setting the tone for the future. In other words, the Virginia statute for religious liberty was regarded in Europe as the first great expression of radical separation in history. The the, the standard before that, sir, had been toleration, that there was a state church in England, the Anglican, but maybe they would tolerate Methodists and maybe tolerate Congregationalists or tolerate Anabaptists within certain restraints. That's not the standard. The standard has to be that the the nation, the state, uh, the polis is absolutely neutral on questions of religion. And so we took the principle of Toleration as our starting point, but it wasn't our end point. Our end point was actual separation of these two entities.
0: As you mentioned in the case of Britain, there you know they would tolerate uh, different different religions. Of course, there are so many different religions in the world that uh, Americans tend to forget that ours is not ours being Christianity primarily is not the only religion. We look at Afghanistan and uh, its condition today, and their state religion mandates certain things, takes rights away from women. And there's a danger of that uh, increasing due to religious beliefs, not just there, but in our country and many parts of the world. I think this is such an important thing to consider.
1: I could not agree more. And I think that we have vindicated this. In other words, if you had asked um, a conservative like, say, John Adams in 1780, what America would look like if there were a complete neutrality on questions of religion, he might have said, this is going to produce chaos. But in your time, uh, there are not just dozens, but scores, maybe hundreds of different sects different congregations, different um, ways of, of labeling different forms of Christianity in the United States from a very high-toned uh, Christian world, to Roman Catholicism, to um, Episcopalianism, which is uh, very formal but but not as um, tied to those traditions as the Roman Catholic Church, down to the, the, the strangest sort of sect uh, on the edge of town that uh, has adherents who find that that persuasion or that preacher to be especially comforting and the fact is that this has worked in other words the only test of this is, is 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 public crime if 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 a religion forces people to take their gun into the public square and shoot each other then that religion is corrupt but if the religion has no produces no criminal, if it doesn't encourage criminal activity, if it doesn't encourage antisocial activity or unconstitutional activity, then we have no quarrel with it. And this has vindicated itself. I mean, the the vast majority of people who um, are adherents of of congregation or sects that would have bewildered John Adams turn out to be absolutely peaceful, law-abiding citizens. And so this loosening of the idea of a state doctrine and a state liturgy and a state-sponsored priesthood, state taxation for religious purposes, the, the the loosening of that in American history has proved to be one of the most extraordinarily good things that we have ever done. And so I, I, I cannot but take the most extraordinary pride in my friendship with James Madison, which was based upon this principle. And we both believed where there is freedom of thought and freedom of conscience, all other liberties will follow. but when there is no freedom of conscience, then most other liberties are not worth having.
0: Let me ask you about another of your friends, your contemporary sir, uh, Mr. Jeff Engel wrote, and he-he says this past June he took a trip to Virginia and visited Monticello, James Monroe's Ash lawn, and James Madison's Montpelier. He wonders if you would talk about your friendship with James Monroe, sir.
1: So we three, myself, James Madison, and James Monroe, were all presidents of the United States uh, in succession. I became the president in 1800 and served until 1809. Madison became the president uh, following me. He served two terms. And when he had completed his two terms in 1816, uh, James Monroe became uh, the fifth president of the United States, and he served for two terms. <laughs> I will speak carefully here. Madison was a genius. He was a diminutive uh, man, a hypochondriac, uh, dour in some ways, um, uh, understated in almost every way, and yet a colossus of profound thinking, a great farmer, essentially the father of the American constitution, certainly the father of the Virginia plan, which dominated the constitutional convention. He's the actual author of the most important amendments to the constitution, the first 10, the bill of rights. He was a remarkably uh, thoughtful president. He was a great secretary of state for me during my two terms as president. Uh, it would be hard to exaggerate Mr. Madison's greatness, and he had this other capacity, which uh, we've spoken of on other occasions, that he was grounded uh, in our friendship. And when I and I'm prone to uh, statements of whimsy, of vision, sometimes of a very radical political nature, I invariably entrusted these statements first to James Madison, and he often talked me down. And, 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 and grounded me in a world of pragmatism that was not always available to me when I got um, wound up in one way or another. So all praise to James Madison. Monroe, the third member of this um, group, was not of the same capacity as James Madison. He was not an intellectual like Madison. He was not a deep thinker. He was not profoundly well-read. He was a good and decent man. In many ways, he was a more radical Republican than Madison, and in a few ways, more radical Republican than I. And the irony is that even though he was, by any historical measure, the least of the three of us, he had the most successful presidency. He presided over something called the Era of Good Feelings. And his presidency was an extraordinary success story and so although i can't put him in the same level as james madison i i did greatly appreciate him and and although madison was my protege in some very very limited regards uh, monroe was a protege i tutored him in the law i was his political sponsor i was his uh, his advocate and champion so monroe probably has the national historical reputation that he deserves. Madison's reputation deserves better. In other words, he should be at the very top of our list of great presidents in the United States, certainly great men who became presidents in the history of the United States.
0: Mr. Jefferson, could you talk a bit about the Monroe Doctrine? I I believe you helped to write that, sir.
1: Yes, I retired from the presidency on March 4th, 1809. I stayed to see my successor, James Madison, inaugurated. I even stayed for the ball, which I did not wish to do. And then I borrowed some money. (laughs) I was perennially um, impoverished, and that enabled me to pay my bills and leave Washington City and go back to my beloved estate at Monticello. Uh, And for the next 17 years, uh, the last 17 years of my life, I never really left the environs of Monticello and Charlottesville. I went to Richmond. I did not go to Williamsburg. I did not ever go back to Washington, D.C. I did not go to Philadelphia or New York or Boston. I was a homebody, and I enjoyed my retirement. Unfortunately, uh, economic problems and poor crops uh, and, and some dysfunction in my larger family really. Clouded some of those years of my retirement, but I never again entered Washington, D.C., or paid much attention to the work of my two predecessors. I certainly didn't try to influence them or to guide them as if I were some sort of senior statesman. And as you know, the last great project of my life was the University of Virginia, and all three of us, Madison, Monroe, and I, were on the board. We were the regents, the readers of that experimental institution. But in 1822 or so, Mr. Monroe wrote to me and asked me about a, he was thinking of, a, of formulating a, a national policy, a doctrine, that would, would keep the Western hemisphere, our hemisphere, free from European meddling. And there was some belief that, that Europeans were interested in sort of colonial movements that they would engage in, in, in Central and South America, and that they would somehow have their own outposts in the Western Hemisphere and interfere in Western hemispheric affairs. And so Monroe asked me what my thoughts were, and I formulated what essentially was the basis of the Monroe Doctrine, that we, here was the bargain we would make with Europe. We would pledge to leave them alone and not interfere in the life of Poland or France or Portugal or Britain, but in turn, they must agree to leave the Western Hemisphere alone and not and make any attempt to maintain colonies there or to introduce colonies or other forms of of government intimidation in central and south america and so i'm not saying that monroe would not have developed something similar on his own but he did ask me uh, for my own uh, view of this and i in a letter to him which you can read uh, made clear the basic principles of a quid pro quo that in other words. Most people regard the Monroe Doctrine as saying leave the Western Hemisphere alone. But we said, in return, we will uh, agree to leave the Eastern Hemisphere, the old world, alone, and it can pursue liberty um, in its own way at its own time.
0: Very interesting. I thank you, Mr. Jefferson, for uh, an enlightening conversation this week. And on behalf of all those who sent questions in, I, I thank you as well.
1: You're most welcome, sir.
0: We're going to take a short break. When we return, we'll be speaking with the gentleman who portrays President Jefferson, Mr. Clay Jenkinson. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to The Thomas Jefferson Hour. Welcome back to the Thomas Jefferson Hour, your weekly conversation with President Thomas Jefferson and your weekly conversation with the gentleman seated across from me now, Mr. Clay Jenkinson. Good day to you, sir.
1: And to you, too, David Swenson, the semi-permanent guest host of the Thomas Jefferson Hour, now in your 17th year of temporary oh, guest hosting,
0: it's hard to believe. I- 17 years, my friend. Yeah, yeah.
1: I haven't <laughs> seen you for about three of those.
0: <laughs> uh, but we're doing all right. This new technology, it works pretty good. Great questions for Mr. Jefferson this week. And I i sincerely thank all of those folks who took time to write the show. There's, We have a stack more uh, for Mr. Jefferson when he returns, which I'm certain will be soon. Uh, a couple of things, though. Speaking of Jefferson, uh, this week on the Introductory segment, which some of the podcast listeners don't get, but the what would Jefferson do? Jefferson's ideas about uh, contemporary American events. Uh, you asked that we revisit that. We talked about vaccines and vaccine mandates, and a number of times during those many years that I've been on the show, we've I have I have recognized, and we, you have talked about the fact that. There are things that come out of your mouth when you portray Jefferson that are difficult. And I suspect this week's What Would Jefferson Do was a little awkward for you. Am I right?
1: Well, yes. Let me try to explain this as best I can. And I'm wrestling with this, David. You know, Jefferson was a man of the Enlightenment. And so he hoped that you would be an enlightened human being and that I would be an enlightened human being and everyone that's listening would be an enlightened human being, that we would educate ourselves. It would be We would be well-informed, we would be civil, we would be open to the dictates of science, that we would strive to be rational, or to use a term from our own time, that we would work to be self-actualized, that each of us would be a fully self-actualized human being. And if we were, then we wouldn't need much government because everyone would always do the right thing. And, and he actually believed this, David, that he actually believed we could be this nation of enlightened People. Of course, it begins with public education and, and so on.
0: And over his shoulder, there was Mr. Adams saying, what are you, nuts? Have uh, you looked
1: around? Have you looked around? <laughs> I,
0: I think that's a perfect response for, for the what would Jefferson do about vaccine mandates. It's obvious it, You've taught me so much about Jefferson. He like he wasn't vaccinated. He was inoculated. He was inoculated against smallpox. And talk about the dangers of this vaccine we have today as opposed to what he went through. Um, but he did it because, as you say, he was enlightened. He understood science, and he believed
1: science. Yeah, so I won't go into the inoculation, but it was like a six-week thing. You had to fast. They put you on like this broth diet, and then they gave you smallpox. You know, they, they they cut your arm and they gave you smallpox and they thought, well, I hope you live. And most people did, but not all. And so I imagine today, you know, there are people that are like, I'm not so sure about the, the security and the safety of vaccines. That's an argument you want to make in 1790 when, you know, you get the inoculation and you might be dead next week, or maybe your immune system is strong enough to survive. So once vaccination came in with Edward Jenner, of course, we all know that there is a tiny, tiny, tiny percentage of people who get any vaccine who have a bad reaction. And some people have a terribly bad reaction. But the number of people who have bad reactions to vaccines is infinitesimally small compared to anything that we're talking about historically. So there's a lot of unreason about this. But here's Jefferson's second point, David, and this is what makes it so hard for me to think about. He loves liberty. I mean, he really meant all that stuff. And he also said, I like a little rebellion now and then. He likes a kind of ornery populace who reject things and are very jealous of their liberties and flare up and shout in the public square if necessary. That's Jefferson. And so when you think of these people who are, who are saying, I'm not being vaccinated because the government can't tell me what to do, that's Jeffersonian. And when people say, when they go to a public meeting and they're, and they feel that they're not being heard, so they start to shout and and disrupt. That's Jefferson. I like a little rebellion now and then. And I do think that there is a, and I, and I know that this was sort of, this upsets me to say, and I think it'll upset you and others to say, but, but there is a, there is, and I've been really rethinking this in the past few months. There is a, a deep fundamental core of, of freedom and freedom with, with a capital F you know, in, in quotation marks underlined freedom. America, you don't hear the British talking about freedom in this way, or the or the Dutch or the or the Chinese or the Portuguese, but America has this heritage legacy about liberty. Don't tread on me. I'm free. And that America in America freedom means something that's mystical, spiritual, deep, fundamental, profound. And that this is this is what's left of the original vision of this country. And so when people say, You can't make me do this. I am free. They're they're not just making stuff up and and being objectionable. They believe that they are that, that they are tapping into the the most profound central principle of American life, and that they are the ones who are right, and the ones who are saying you must get a vaccine. They they get it. It's not the biggest thing in the world. It's not the worst form of tyranny, but it is tyranny to them because it means that. It's a slippery slope. If you can force me to wear a mask, if you can force me to get a vaccine, then what else are you going to force me to do in the course of your nanny state or your or your managed centralized government? And I get it, and I'm in some sense I'm with them.
0: Boy, I, I'm not. I get it, and I disagree, and I think this idea of freedom and liberty is a myth. That's that that does not exist. It, you know, yeah, of course, there are freedoms in America that you find nowhere else in the world. But to say that we are free and we don't have to do it, it's it's a myth. We are not. We are required to do things every day. And if you start chipping away at that, you start chipping away at what society is. And there are those who want that. Um, but it's not going to make America great again. It's going to make America um, fall again.
1: Well, I, (laughs) I, I,
0: sorry, sorry for that, but you know, I got to get my chips in once in a while. So
1: I I sort of agree with that. And then I mostly don't, (laughs) but I sort of agree with it. We're not that country anymore. We're not a Republic. We're not a three mile per hour world. We're not, you know, we're not using muskets. We're not plowing with a single horse. Uh, We're a different place. We're a radically different place. And so the principles of the early republic sort of belong to an agrarian republic. And when we became this thing, whatever, however you want to describe it, this world superpower, this, this materialistic paradise... You require a very different sort of system to make that work. And we've strained and tugged at our constitution to make it work. We're not that republic anymore. And I think you're right. We're now at the point where, hey, there's a worldwide pandemic. You know, We may need to mandate certain things for us to get through this. The greatest good for the greatest number may require me to wear a mask. And so I'm with you, of course,
0: 100%. What, what freedoms are there? that you and I experience every day that are so absolutely unique. There are people who lack education, who lack health care, who lack shelter, who lack food. And in a truly free society, there's enough of that for everybody to go around. But that's not the system that we have.
1: If I can interrupt your rant here.
0: Oh, please, you better settle me down or I'll be, my 17-year tenure is going to come to a Could screeching halt. be over now. Yeah. Be
1: ending. No, look, the, here's the paradox that I've been trying to get at. So, A, we're, uh, we're the agrarian Republican vision based on these kind of radical principles of freedom and liberty from the founding fathers. And and I'm saying that worked better then than it works now, but that, that still is regarded as one of the heritage principles of American life. And, and that's why people carry around flags that say, don't tread on me. You don't see that in Holland. But the second part is that this only works if we're highly self-actualized, self-educated, and enlightened. And so Jefferson created this paradox. He wanted this, this radically limited minimalist government, and he wanted each one of us to be a little Jefferson, a little enlightened human being, a person who always did the, the rational and the and the intelligent and the wise thing. You can't have one without the other. And Adam said, you know, A, human nature is such that you're not going to have universal self-enlightenment. Look around, what do you see? And B You need government to coordinate human activity because humans are not all going to be this ideal super citizen. And Jefferson wouldn't let it go because he thought, I'd rather seek the super citizen and have limited government than have cynicism about human nature and more government. And so we wrestle with this from that day until this day. And I I agree with you. Every rational human being should be vaccinated, I think. but, but we, I also we, believe, don't tread on me.
0: Well, we should move on from this. <laughs> I'm going to sneak in one last word. Is it, you know, we, no, I'll be, I'll be calm. I'll be calm. We all submit to rules every day, be it driver's licenses, driver's insurance, behaving on airlines, paying taxes. We all submit to rules of the nation every day. And we do it for the good of the nation. So I guess the question is, is how do we convince people that these particular rules are for the good of the nation? But on to a happier subject, we got a letter from Bryant Cheely, who said, I just want to chime in and say that I am in favor of the Jefferson Hour Book Club returning. I've always enjoyed the thought-provoking Jefferson Watch essays, and I do hope that Clay brings them back as well. So from Bryant uh, the Jefferson Hour Book Club.
1: Yes, yeah, so we do want to reinstitute or um, re-energize uh, the book club. but We need to think of a book to read uh, that people will want to read, and that is somehow related to the world of Mister Jefferson.
0: Oh, I, I would, I would recommend "The Cause" by our friend Joe Ellis.
1: All right, let's do it. "The Cause: The American Revolution and Its discontent 1773 to 1783." Uh, Joseph Ellis, winner of the Pulitzer Prize, I have an advanced reading copy right in front of me here. We'll set the date for that. It'll be probably a month or so from now, and so everyone should get a copy of the Cause and read it. And they'll get Joe on um, to either be part of one show or uh, or part of two. But we'll we'll promise that. And the and the Jefferson Watch essays, yes, I love them. I miss them. You're so busy. You don't have time to do that anymore, though, do you? Well, i got to find the time because, you know, I have a lot that I want to say, and it helps me so much to like one of these wild rants that you've been on. If you had just sat down and written this out in a polite essay, right, we should all coordinate our thoughts in that manner. Very good.
0: Uh, I take the advice. I'm really joking. The, there's a bunch of letters here, and I, I won't go through all the names, but uh, we've something you've talked about numerous times on the show, and... Um, we need to devote a little time to it so you can explain it better to people. But your upcoming Constitution course, I think this is like the third version of it, isn't it? Can you, can you bring us up to date and, and maybe explain it to people for those who don't
1: know? begins on November 6th, so it's coming fast. It goes through December 11th. There will be five sessions. Uh, it's on the Constitution, and, we're, and I'm going to—we're looking at the Constitution, how it was made, by whom, for what purposes, how it's been amended, and why, and how often— how we interpret it that's the big thing you know are we literalists are we do we believe in broad construction are we originalists are we pragmatists uh, so there's a lot of talk about in america about how to interpret the constitution i want to sort through some of that and then i want to spend some time talking about a more perfect union what if we what if we had a constitutional convention today what are the things we would want to address that are uncertain or confusing or out of date in the Constitution of the United States, so it's five sessions plus on Wednesday nights uh, office hours, which are not mandatory but which are great fun. And it begins, as I say, on the sixth of November and runs for the next five weeks. I love this. I did. I've done this twice before. This is the third, as I say, backed by popular demand. Uh, we have two books uh, that people should read, but also just reading the Constitution and the Bill of Rights uh, and the other seventeen amendments is the basis of the, of the whole thing.
0: And it's all held on Zoom. Um, I know you you invited me to uh, pop into one of those early ones, and it was it's great fun, and it really works well.
1: Zoom does work, and, you know, I only invited you in because people said you don't exist.
0: <laughs> After today's rant, I may not. I'm um, some sort
1: of bot, you know.
0: So if people want to sign up for it, they should go to jeffersonhour.com, and I think all of the information is there, right? November
1: 6th through December 11th. Um, I. This is, I mean, let me just make quickly make the case for this. I've been writing about this this morning. We're in such a perplexed time. I think everyone is a little shell-shocked after the last 15 years, and particularly after the last six. And the questions that we're asking are, what does this signify? Where are we headed? What just happened? What kind of country are we becoming? What kind of country can we become? Can we back away from these the precipice of this cold civil war? Do we need to revise, rewrite, or amend the Constitution? Do the guardrails hold? Do we need more guardrails? Uh, you know, what's, what, is, what does this whole thing signify, this kind of crazy time we've been in? And I think everyone is just spiritually and mentally exhausted from it. I know I am. And so I think that this is the time to talk about, you know, there are three constitutions. There's the capital C Constitution, which is the thing written in 1787. And amended 27 times. There's the small C Constitution, and that's the norms like a State of the Union messages before Congress and uh, executive orders and, and so on, things that uh, the filibuster, things that are not in the Constitution, but which constitute the way we do our public business. And then the third Constitution is the way we constitute ourselves on any given day. I don't think about the US Constitution. I go to Costco or I go to the gas station or I go to the grocery store or I write letters to my friends or I read a book. I mean, most of our lives are non-constitutional, and that's how we constitute ourselves. That's what Alexis de Tocqueville called the habits of the heart, the, the actual habits, the way people constitute their daily, weekly, monthly, and annual lives, family, work, etc. And so those three constitutions coexist, and We fixate on the capital C constitution, but the Trump phenomenon showed us there's also a small C constitution of norms that has become extremely important in American life and which is not written up in the document that Madison and the 54 others wrote in Philadelphia in 1787. So the course is about all these things. And we wrestle, especially during the office hours with what's going on in this country and how does it relate to the original vision of the founders? And and here's the question, David, can we come back? Are we now in a a death spiral as a nation, or is this just another episode? I think that's what you would say. And can we come back? Can we restore civility, norms? Can we get a Congress that can agree to compromise and get things done? Can we back away from this precipice of anger and rage and and demonizing the other? I don't, don't know the answer to this, but I think you would say... Oh, come on. We've been through this a number of times before and we always level out, wouldn't you? I'm trying to give you a chance to be responsible here.
0: And with that, sir, we are out of time for this week's conversation.
1: Don't you agree <laughs> that, that we will? this too will pass and we will return to a time of stability?
0: Boy, I hope so. I think the next two years are going to tell that story and... We'll find out if our children are left with the nation that we grew up in.
1: So, sign up for this Constitution course if you're interested. These discussions are fun. They're not at all dry. It's not like a civics uh, course that you took in eighth grade. I hope people will join us. It's so important. Anyway, thank you, David. You're not temporary, you're stuck here, I'm afraid. We'll see you all next week for another important edition of the Thomas Jefferson album.
2: The Thomas Jefferson Hour is brought to you each week by Dakota Sky Education. The program is distributed nationally by Prairie Public. President Thomas Jefferson lived from 1743 to 1826, and this program presents his views. President Jefferson is portrayed by the award-winning humanities scholar and author Clay S. Jenkinson. To obtain a copy of this or any show for a $12 donation, please call 701 575 This program is also available online at JeffersonHour.com and on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to correspond with President Jefferson or submit a question for him to answer on the program, please visit the website at JeffersonHour.com. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is produced at Makoche Recording Studios in Bismarck, North Dakota. Bach Cello Suite Number 3 in C Major by Stephen Swinford. Thank you for listening. Please tune in again next week for another thought-provoking, historically accurate program Through the Eyes of Thomas Jefferson.